Welcome to Rework, a show by Basecamp about a better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. This is the second part of our mailbag show where Jason and David answer your questions. If you're new to the show, you might want to go back and catch the first one. And remember, if you'd like your questions answered on the show, leave a voicemail at 708-628-7850 or email us at hello at rework.fm. And if you don't have a question, we're actually gathering stories for an upcoming episode about horrible meetings. So if you have a funny or cringeworthy or otherwise notable story about a meeting at work, please call in and tell us about it or feel free to email us. And if you have a story about a way you stopped having horrible meetings at work, we'll also take that story too. Any kind of meeting story, I want to hear them. Hi, friends. My name is Mark Johnson. I'm a product owner in Cleveland, Ohio. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we non-managers, non-C-levels can gain support for rework-type ideas. I certainly see what I can get away with at work without having to ask for approval, uh, but when I've tried to reach out to management previously, um, my ideas, um, well, your ideas, the ones we have in common, tend to fail. So this reminds me of... When I was working in Copenhagen uh, in 2001, I worked at a company called Kput. And at the time, I was reading um, Joel on Software a bunch, a wonderful blog by Joel Spolsky, that, um, the founder of Fog Creek and Stack Overflow and a bunch of other companies. Anyway, he was blogging in, in much of the similar way that we then ended up blogging on one of the early inspirations. And I took a lot of ideas for him, and I wanted to try those damn ideas. But I happened to be a HTML monkey working at Kput, which was pretty much the lowest rung on the, uh, on the ladder. So I had no natural traction. And what I found was that if you have no natural traction, it's almost impossible to inflict any kind of change. The only change you can inflict is on yourself, your own work, and perhaps your team. That's who you can convince. You're not going to convince anyone else in management of radical new ideas that have not been tried in your environment where they've not seen actual results. It just doesn't work like that, which is kind of discouraging. Like I tried and pushed a lot and I got exhausted and I just thought like, well, this sucks. And it was one of the motivations for why I ended up wanting to uh, be part of running a company, not just be employed by a company because I felt like the ideas that I had read, the ideas that I found to be true I couldn't put those into life. I could affect my own work, and that was absolutely a positive change. A bunch of the things that we talk about on interruptions or how to structure your day or how you feel about progress, these are all things that are about you remapping, reshaping your brain and your reactions. But the organizational patterns, unless you have buy-in from someone who already is sympathetic to the ideas, forget about it, unfortunately. Which is kind of sad um, that in many cases it's, it's easier to find a new job than it is to convince a stubborn boss uh, that they're wrong, right? Like the power dynamics just generally do not allow for that to happen. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add except to say that I've heard from some people who've tried this and um, David alluded to it basically is, is go down to the smallest possible level you can, which might just be yourself or your team if you're managing a team or something. I think you said you're a product owner. So you have some power at some level 
to change what's below you, but very little to change what's above you. And so you're working on a product. You hopefully have some control over the product and the team. You can apply some of these principles there. But I, I do think if, if you try to walk uphill with them, you're, you're, you're going to get tired really fast. People are going to push you back down. So I just say stick, stick to your local, local area as best you can. And then, you know, people are uh, – maybe your management or managers or owners – you know, they're going to pay attention to success and, 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 and to results and whatnot. And so if, you, if your little group um, is doing something better than some other little group, they're going to go, oh, what's going on in this little group? And they might see what's going on, and perhaps then you have some leverage. I think if you want to have some change, you have to have leverage. And um, you got to think about you know, how, how big is the lever, basically. It's going to be very difficult to move a whole company with a, with a, with a short lever. You need a big, long lever, um, and that comes from, uh, you know, being successful in your own little space for a while, then you can move the company perhaps. So anyway, it's going to take a while. It's going to be very hard, but I'd stay focused on what you can actually control and not so much, um, uh, you know, the thing, you might want to change the whole thing, but you're probably not going to be able to do that. And one of the things I've found too is just the limits of logic. Like you think, oh, this argument is so persuasive. Like I was really persuaded by this argument. So I can just use this really good argument for someone else, and it just doesn't work like that. Unless there's, uh, I think Clayton Christensen had this notion of, there's got to be a room, a slot in their brain for this argument. Unless there's already room and they're receptive to it, it doesn't matter how good the argument is. It doesn't matter how good the logic is. It's just not going to fit. Yeah, if their business is running fine in their eyes, like why would they mess it up? Um, of course, if there's a mutiny and a bunch of people start leaving, then like it might wake them up. But if things are probably okay from where they sit, it's going to be very, very hard to change someone's mind. Just like it's hard to change your mind if everything's fine where you sit. Maybe you're open to these ideas because things aren't fine for you. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'd start small, string together some successes. Perhaps that gives you some more leverage to have at least a more of a conversation and be taken more seriously. Otherwise, if you go straight to the top without successes or without um, a handful of wins, it's going to be very, very hard to convince anybody of anything. So Luke asks a question about mental health. He wants to know, how do you support people suffering with mental health problems? Do you treat time off for mental health the same as you would do for dealing with physical illness? That's a good question. And I think, um, especially in the U.S., mental health issues um, have an odd stigma to it. Um, someone being depressed is often not taking that serious. And I think we'd like to think at least that we treat that topic with, with more respect and in part with the privacy that that often entails. So when we talk about uh, vacation and time off, um, one of the ideas is that first of all, there's a general principle of like three weeks of vacation, but then there's also the flexibility of just days off that you need. Like, that's days, that's not months or whatever, but it just gives some direction. Like, if you're going to take a couple of days off, like you feel off or whatever, totally fine. No one is going to ask questions about that. And I think that that's often how it comes in that, like, a lot of people would feel uncomfortable raising that as, oh, I want to take time off because I'm just feeling depressed. If you just have a reasonable buffer of days that someone can take for whatever reason, you can take those for that. We've had other cases, though, when um, I think um, one employee just wrote up uh, a heartbeat uh, a couple of days ago, just simply stating it outright, like, I didn't feel good today. It wasn't a physical thing. I, I, my head wasn't in it, and I took the day off. And we have this feature in Basecamp where you can basically applaud that and, like, 
half the company applauded that. Like there's a think an acceptance uh, about this now that wasn't true perhaps um, 10 years ago or 15 years ago in, in the same way. And I'm sure it's also not the same in, in every company. We've also had other cases where someone needed more time off. And actually, that's how we came up with the notion of the sabbatical. So at Basecamp, every three years, you can take a month off, and you can use that month to learn a new skill, sit on the couch, do housework, um, do anything you want. And it started actually as someone who just needed a sustained amount of time off from work to work through some, some personal mental issues. And it worked out so well in that case that we thought, like, well, why shouldn't everyone have that opportunity? So that's kind of how we think about it and how we try to help. Yeah, I don't have much to add other than um, I think what's tricky about this for a lot of people is coming forward and, and saying, like, look, if you if you have the flu, it's really easy to go, hey, I, I'm sick. I just threw up last night. It was like a t- terrible night. I need, like, I'm out. And you're like, okay, like I have a fever. I'm out, right? It's hard sometimes for an employee to come to, to a boss or whatever and say, hey, um, I've, you know, I'm suffering depression or, or whatever, or there's, or someone in my family is, or, you know, my husband, my wife, my partner, whoever, like I need to be around for someone else. It's difficult to do that. So we try and be, you know, as sensitive as possible to that. If someone brings it up, it's, it's completely private. Unlike, you know, if someone has the flu, you might just tell your friends or your other coworkers, Hey, this guy's out cause he's got the flu or whatever. Um, I think you have to be very careful about that and very sensitive about that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's important. I, I don't really know how else to handle it beyond being um, uh, thoughtful and, and private about it and being completely fair and recognize that it, recognizing that it's real. Um, and if someone needs extended time, then, then they'll get extended time. And I, I think that's, that's what we've always done. And if there's other things we can do to, to be better, I think we should. Um, but it's a great topic. And uh, I think it's not really discussed that much. I, I think depression is discussed often, but how do companies deal with it or handle it when an employee has it? Or, or is it sustained or is it a short, like that, that, those are topics that are really interesting. And um, I don't know if there's been that much discussed generally about that. So I think what we try to think about the topic too is, are we contributing to that? Are you in a work environment that's going to make it worse? If you are prone to depression, are we putting on workloads or scenarios that create extra stress for you to kind of get into the lulls of that? Um, same thing with burnout. Are we doing things, scheduling projects in such a way or otherwise configuring our business such that we would make things worse? And if we are, let's change it. So we've done a lot of things, and the, the whole the keyword, the theme for Basecamp for, for a while now has been, like, how can we get more calm? And I think this notion of calm has a helpful impact on, on these issues, and it makes it um, easier to cope with if you do have a tendency to d- depression, um, to, to not get sucked into that, because we surely should not be contributing to that. So oftentimes, um, it's not related to that at all. Sometimes it is. And for those times, um, can we do more to kind of lessen that? And I think the tech industry in particular is actually t- terrible at this. Um, I think overwork, um, stress, meaningless deadlines, meaningless pressure, that's all just self-imposed, is absolutely a contributor to depression, to burnout, to all sorts of mental issues where we could just do so much better. Because why? Why are we doing these things? Why is it such why is it so crazy at work? Why is um, the deadlines so unrealistic? Why is there such an encouragement to work 80 or 90 or 100 hours? Um, why are we doing this again? 
um, and just recognizing that if you have an environment like that, that has consequences. And for some people, those consequences they can just shrug them off. And for other people, those consequences are full-on depression, burnout, or other issues. That's a really good point. I, I hadn't thought about that so much, but it's 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 spot on because um, I think in general. Um, Corporate America, I know I'm generalizing when I go there, but um, let's just call it work. People think, I would, I guess, my, my assumption is, is that a lot of companies think people, their employees bring depression into work. Like depression happens outside of work and they bring it into work and it affects work. But really it could be the office and the work that's creating the depression in people's lives. So that's a really great point David brought up about, you know, like if people are coming to you with that, uh, again, it's delicate to figure out and if you're not a qualified psychologist, who knows, right? It's hard to f- diagnose all this stuff. That we, we, we can't diagnose it. But I do think it's important to look at that and recognize, you know, what is this person doing here? What, what's our environment? What have we created here? What are we, what are we putting people through? Um, and are we contributing to that? I think that's a great, a great point, something that's, that's worth thinking about. Reminds me of this cartoon about climate change where um, there's this uh, – conference basically where they're talking about all the things we oh we could clean up the air we could clean up the oceans we could do all these things and then one person like writes them well what if we just made the earth better and like it wasn't us right like what if we just made so whether you're a contributor to depression or burnout and whatever um like what's the worst that can happen if you make your workplace better well your workplace gets better whether that's a contributor or not to the uh, mental anguish of, of the people who work there, it still gets better. So you should be doing your part, and you should be doing more to uh, create a calm environment. Aaron from Portland emailed us to ask, what advice do you have for developers wanting to work at a company run like Basecamp? Seemingly every company hiring developers touts their amazing work-life balance, their unlimited vacation policy, and their sponsored lunches or happy hours. It's really difficult to figure out which companies actually mean what they say. What should I look for when researching a company? Um, I get this one a lot via email, too. Um, people say, I know you guys don't have any openings, but are there other companies out there like Basecamp? And I, I generally say I don't know because uh, I really don't. Um, uh, I don't really keep track of that sort of thing. But um, I think if you want to know what it's really like somewhere, you have to ask someone who works there. You really shouldn't take the company's advice or word for it. Uh, that, that would be my, my thing. So, you know, you can go on LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter or whatever and find someone who works at this place and say, hey, I'm thinking about working there. Um, what's it really like there? You know, and, and get, get their actual take. And I think I'd probably talk to someone who's been there who's just hired recently and also someone who's been there for a while because there's always a honeymoon period and, you know, some people are really fired up about the new job. Maybe they're unemployed for a long time, so any job is great. Like, it's hard to know. So I get a sense of what the different... Um, sort of frames of time are like there. For example, um, I think maybe a year ago, had you asked someone who was just joined Basecamp what it was like, some people would say it was pretty crappy, actually. I think our onboarding process was actually really bad. We hadn't really been hiring very frequently, and we really hadn't sort of perfected the onboarding experience. And so um, it wasn't very good. And we heard that from a few employees because we started doing these entry interviews and started to learn about what the, what the onboarding experience was like. And we've made some significant improvements. And now I think hopefully a lot of people feel like it's pretty great. Um, people have been working here for a long time would probably say it's really good, but someone new was like, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And I didn't even know who to talk to. And I wasn't sure what to do next. And so I, I talked to a few different people, get a sense of it. Um, also I will say this, that if you're looking for, um, if you're like piling up the perks and figuring out if that's a good company to work for, you're probably 
looking at the wrong things. Um, their unlimited vacation policy is not going to make you happy. Their, their sponsored lunches are not going to make you happy. Their um, amazing work-life balance, whatever that means, like maybe that has something to do with happiness for you, but what does it really mean? Who really knows? Um, so I'd figure out why you want to work at that place to begin with. Are they doing interesting work? Do you like the people who work there? Do they generally seem to be a cool place to be or place that feels good um, for you based on what you've heard and what you've read? I wouldn't just kind of measure up the perks that I think you're you're sort of then you're just looking at the ingredients and you're not really tasting the dish. And I think that the you know ingredients are sort of you know you just kind of pile them up and you're like, is this going to taste good? I don't know. Who knows? It's just a bunch of things. So I, I'd look at that. So anyway, that's my general advice for it. I don't think there's a list. We don't have a list of companies like us or anything like that. I would just kind of go ask people who be, who've been there. I'd also look at that label. If you are going to look at the ingredients, you should think a little more carefully about them. For example, unlimited vacation policy. Mm, there's a lot of very good critique out there about that principle. Um, we used to have an unlimited vacation policy, and we went away from that because it's actually terrible in all sorts of ways. It creates this uncertainty about what is actually reasonable. Unlimited doesn't mean unlimited at all. It's more like a cell phone plan where there's like two pages of footnotes on what unlimited actually means. Or what about catered lunch, lunches or anything else at the office? There's foosball tables. Is the idea there that employees should live their whole lives at the office? That as anything that can keep them there longer is actually better. There's a bunch of perks that seem like they're great on the outside, and then if you actually think about them a little more, then they're not so great. And there's more of a motive behind those perks that are all about keeping people at the office for 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And then all of a sudden you could think like, oh, the perks sounded great, but the consequences of, of that is not something I'm interested in. Like maybe you are, maybe you want to work 80 hours a week and you want to have the office be a playground where you can stay all day. Well, fine. You can hear about the sarcasm in my tone that I don't think that's <laughs> fine at all, actually. So the Perks and the benefits that we try to line up at Basecamp, for example, are all about supporting people away from work. Like we actually don't have any catered lunches or foosball tables. Or actually, maybe we have a we have a ping pong ping somewhere. Folded it's some, folded some up some now. tables yeah. somewhere, yeah. but it's not the focus of it, right? Like the focus is on something else. So I'd look at that and then think a little deeper about what these things mean. I've also done a little bit of a thought experiment around this. Whenever I see other companies applying or having job openings, I'll sometimes read their their listings. I'm curious to see how other companies advertise for, for jobs. And when I look at some of the perks, they're actually huge turnoffs for me. So I'll see like drink-ups every Friday. Like I would never work at a place where there's drink-ups. Like, like that to me is just not for me. Some people might like that. I do not like that. Not, not for me. And that to me signals the values of the company and the importance of alcohol and whatever is going on at a company. Um, so I'd look at perks also, not just as, as, as things that, that you're attracted to, but things that you're, you know, you want to reject basically and go, if, if the list of things doesn't feel like me, um, or like I can sort of see the culture through, through this, I can read between the lines, like that's not going to be a place for me. Um, I'd use them also as filters and not just, uh, things that you're attracted to. Hey, this is Troy from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, the internet is filled with business advice, and I think a lot of people spend time listening to podcasts and reading books, thinking that the next chapter is going to have some secret nugget of information that will, you know, lead them to prosperity and success, when in reality, they just need to put their head down and get to work. So, do you guys have any advice for how to ignore advice? That's good. I think, um, 
when we got started with Basecamp, we were a little fortunate in the sense that the internet advice cottage industry had not ramped up to the insane levels it's at right now. So it was a little easier to ignore that. Um, these days, one of the best antidotes I find is um, Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Anti-Fragile and The Black Swan and so on. He has a great way of weighing books and advice, like whether it's valuable enough, which is basically, is it old? Because if it's old, it means it's survived. If a book is 20 years old and it's still in print and it's still for sale, you know what? The advice is probably pretty good because otherwise it would not be in print and it would not be for sale. Most books do not get second printings. Very, very few books get 20th printings. So if you basically just look for old advice, and it doesn't even have to be that old. I mean, the power law of this is that any book or collection of advice that survives 10 years has outlived 99.99% of all advice. So that's where I kind of go shopping for advice in the archives. Uh, one of my favorite books on business, for example, is the book The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And I think that was written in 1954. And I learned a lot about what he calls securities analysis, which is basically just looking at businesses and figuring out, is this a good business or a bad business? Most of the principles that he applies in that book are the same principles I apply to looking at whether Groupon was a good business or not a good business, whether Zynga had an enduring model. And it doesn't always all apply, but I think you can take up some of those core principles, the ones that really are going to endure, the ones that are not going to change in five minutes or two years, and you get those from sources that have survived. Another source of great advice that I've found is... Um, Stoicism and the Stoic principles. And most of that advice is about mm, 2,500 to 3,000 years old. And it's incredibly timely and it's incredibly good because it survived 3,000 years. The vast majority of advice you'll read on Medium or whatever is going to be forgotten next week. So I would be careful where you mine for that advice. The easiest thing on the internet is to just follow a link, which will lead you to the most recent thing. The most recent thing is very, very unlikely to be the best thing. The very few, very recent things turn out to be the best things. So it's just so much easier to go back into catalogs and just say, I'm going to ignore the chatter that's going on right now and just focus on the old stuff because there's plenty of it. And the education and the value you're going to get out of that is way more likely to, to be a hit. So... I'd say shut your laptop and maybe bring out your Kindle or order some actual physical books, which is funny because I didn't use to hold this opinion. I used to think that most books were too long or they were too boring or whatever, and it was because I was reading the wrong books. I was basically reading books that were just like Medium posts are today, compilations of a single idea that didn't stand the test of time. Once I started just going a little further back and reading books from 1954 or from 2500 or for 250 BC, I thought, like, oh, actually, books are pretty good. You just have to find the right ones. And, and there's just not a lot of those, but there's still plenty of them, right? I think another uh, good uh, book Jason and I have been talking about recently was a big inspiration for both of us, which is the book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. And I think that was published in 1999 or 98 or something like that. It's basically 20 years old. It's still good. And just go for those tomes. So I'll, I'll add another perspective just to round it out a bit. Um, couple, Actually, a couple things. First of all, I like to look at the source, of course. Um, and I like to take advice from people who've done the thing that they're telling you to do. 
So there's a lot of academics that provide advice. There's a lot of sort of business celebrities that provide advice. There's a, there's a lot of that stuff. And if they haven't done what they're telling you to do, I, I don't listen to it, basically. It might be right. It might be wrong. I don't even care. Because it's it, if they can't even do it or if they haven't even done it, I feel like they're making it up. So that's the first thing I would look at is, has this person done it, done the thing they're talking about? The other thing is, is that I think... While I, I agree with David about like some really solid old advice, I think that advice has an expiration date as well. Uh, for example, um, I haven't started a business in 18 years, so don't ask me how to start a business. I don't remember, to be honest. I can tell you about how to run a business and how to make decisions as we go and whatever, and I could probably come up with some really fundamental basic principles on, on how to start a business, but I think you're better off talking to someone who started a business six months ago than talking to me about how to start one. If you want to talk about how to stay in business, talk to me. I think I've done that pretty well. But So, so I, think, I think that's the key is that, that just because someone did something a while ago it doesn't mean they still know how to do it anymore in the given environment. There's some like sort of fundamental truths, which I, th- which I think is what David was getting at. There's some stuff that does stand the test of time. But I think a lot of the stuff that's sort of spewed today um, is very temporal. It's like right now, and, and it just sort of who knows if it's going to hold up and who knows if it isn't. Um, and also, you know, the person who's giving the advice may have, may have done it a long time ago. So, so first, first of all, look at the advice and figure out, has this person even done it? When did they do it? Is the time roughly the same? And if not, are these principles so fundamental that they'll still stick around or, or not? That's kind of how I would uh, uh, approach advice. And also, I think for the most part, you're probably better off not paying attention to any of it, um, really, and just doing something. Uh, learning, learning it yourself, I think... Um, there's a lot of people these days, especially, who are obsessed with getting the latest tip and hack and whatever, and probably doesn't really matter as much as you're not going to learn as much from that as just simply doing the thing. And then after you've tried to do it, and if it didn't work, then ask someone for some help. But maybe don't ask for help ahead of time because it's going to sort of point you in their direction versus your own direction. I find, too, that when you try to consume advice about things you actually haven't done, there's not the right slots in your brain for it. I remember when I went to Copenhagen Business School, and I had been out. I had been out working in the industry for three years before I went to Copenhagen Business School, and I found that a lot of my peers, classmates who'd gone straight from high school to college, they had no way to process the information and where to put it because they had no experiences to bounce the advice off. So it just bounced off. And they just took notes on everything. I would take very, very few notes at Copenhagen Business School because most of the stuff got filtered through the sieve of my experiences where someone else who didn't know what was really important or what resonated, they just took everything down, which meant that they learned nothing. And I find that um, when I want to learn, for example, a new programmer language, I have to sit down and start typing on the computer. You can't just sit and read a whole book about it. That doesn't doesn't do anything. So most of the advice that I seek out is when I'm already doing it. It's kind of like I'm trying to put together, I put together a desk actually uh, three days ago. I just started putting it together. And then as soon as I found a piece that like didn't fit, I was like, all right, let's look at the instructions. It's just so much easier to do it that way. Just in time, you just take the bits that you need to get on to the next point, And then you keep moving from there. I agree, but I, I, I do the same thing. I just kind of get as far as I can, and then when I can't, I go look for help. Um, if you look for help ahead of time, uh, you, you're probably spending time on something that won't actually help you. You don't really need it yet, 
you don't need help until you've done something and you're stuck, basically, is the, is the way I would look at that. So I wouldn't mind for advice that you don't need and you haven't encountered the problems that it's referring to yet. So when people are talking about, here's how to start a business, here's how to do this, here's how to do that, well, if you haven't started one yet, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Just like, you don't, to start one, you just do something, first of all. Like, starting a business is, you don't have to get legal about it. You just do the thing you're going to do, and you can deal with the rest later. Um, so yeah, don't, don't get advice ahead of time on things you don't need. It's like, you don't have a problem yet until you actually have it. Don't worry about it. Great. So don't take our advice. Read other people's books <laughs> and don't ask Jason about shit. That's exactly. <laughs> That's a great summary. That's what I would say. <laughs> We at Rework want to wish you a very happy holiday season. We are going to take a few weeks off, and we'll see you back here in 2018.